you know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. You can ask my wife and kids about this one, but it is true. John O'Leary very rarely watches television. I'm not a big TV guy, but even a guy who very seldom watches TV knows immediately the show, The Amazing Race. It's one of the most successful television shows in TV history. And today we've invited on not only the gentleman who is on every single episode, he's been doing this work now for 35 seasons. He's also the mastermind behind the show. His name is Phil Kogan. And arguably he's one of the most traveled television hosts on the planet. Yeah, not only through the amazing race, but also through other aspects of his journey and life. You're gonna hear about that journey today. Because on this episode, fresh off the milestone 35th season premiere of The Amazing Race, it was just last night, Phil joins us to share how he's been globetrotting since he was a young boy, how his working class parents and grandparents inspired his other hit television show, Tough as Nails, and he's going to share so much more. My friends, I want you to get out your map and your compass, maybe a Gatorade body armor, something to sip on while you're going through this conversation, you may need it because this man is not only extraordinarily well-traveled, he's also extraordinarily inspirational. Today's conversation will inspire you in your own walk, in your own travels, in your own life to take more risk, to accept and to love all of those around you, regardless of differences, and to live your life to the fullest. So without further ado, let me loop him in right now. He's a television host. He's a globetrotter. He's a father. He's a husband. And he's my friend. His name is Phil Kogan. Phil, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you for having me. I understand you got uh, people listening around the world, 140 countries or something. It's about how many you've been to right now. So we, we got 140 sure. days that are tuning in, including several of my own office who are huge fans of yours, including my mom and dad at home who I'm sure will be leaning toward the radio for this one and uh, several other dear friends and family tuning in. For those who maybe don't recognize your voice or for our viewers who are watching us right now, maybe they somehow don't recognize your face, but they're like, man, that guy just looks familiar in the name. Where do I know that from? When you bump into someone who thinks they know you, but they're not sure from where, how do you introduce yourself? 
That's a good question. Sometimes I have fun with the fact that they maybe think I'm somebody else and, and I'll tease them a wee bit. I remember when somebody recognized me, they're like, God, I know I know you. Um, hold on, I got it, I got it. Um, and then I jokingly said one day to somebody who was sort of flustered, the tribe has spoken. And then I put my hand like this, like I was putting out the flame. And then the guy went, yeah, 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 that's it. You're the guy. You're the guy. No, hold on a second. No, it's not that show. So I do have fun. And that to me is one of the best parts of my job is getting the feedback that I get. And I can't imagine working on a controversial show where you're getting negative feedback from an audience who maybe are calling you out for something that they don't agree with. And you mentioned to me that you try to appeal to everybody. You're not trying to pick sides. You're, you're having conversations, you're talking, you're listening. You know, that great quote, you can't receive when you're transmitting. We need more of the receiving in the world right now instead of all the transmitting. There's a lot of transmitters. So I love that we pump something out that's positive. And then people, when they stop me, will say something positive about the show. It inspired me to travel or it inspired me to write my life list, or it inspired me to do my own work around the house or to take that trip that I always wanted to take with a family member. So we are lucky in the sense that we get to make something that we know has a positive impact on the world. I mean, we're not brain surgeons. We're not saving lives in the operating room, but it's hard to measure just how many lives you are influencing or enhancing uh, as a result of just maybe giving some things to somebody at a time when they really need it. I had a fan the other day, they said to me, Phil, I just want to thank you for your shows because I've been in a pretty dark place recently and it just helped to pick me up and make me feel good about the world. And I wrote back and said, surround yourself with love. Know that there are people that care about you. Keep those who love you close. And when you have the strength, mm. reach out and do the same, even if it's just a smile. It was interesting how many people, how many fans got on and said to this guy, yeah, hey, listen, you know, hang in there. Uh, I went through something similar. And all of a sudden there was this positive conversation going on. And I really believe we need more of that in the world right now. We're not talking like we used to talk because people are worried about offending people to the point where they're not talking because they don't want to offend people. But the whole point of conversation is sometimes you might, it might be jarring with somebody because you don't necessarily understand their way of thinking. That's the whole point of the conversation is, well, hold on a second. You're offended. Well, hold on. Let's talk about that. Why, why? And help me understand why you're sensitive about that. That those conversations were encouraged when I was a kid with my parents. Healthy debate, healthy discussion, healthy conversation to understand differences and understand why we are different, but yet the same. And I'm concerned right now that we've gone so far the other way that people who get offended are seen as being right. And we're not having, and sometimes they are, but sometimes we're not having conversations that should be had to help them understand also, hold on a second, that's not what was meant here. Or conversely, if the person is genuinely offended, 
it may be because of ignorance and the lack of understanding from the other person. And that's okay. Because how can we all know everything about every culture, every person, every, we don't know. I mean, somebody could make a joke about what happened to you, you know, make up, maybe it's a fire joke, right? You don't know. Maybe it's like a flippant joke and they have no idea of your background. And then you could just say to them, hey, listen, the reason I'm sensitive about that is because of what I went through in my life. Most people are going to be like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize yet. Rather than doing life with individuals, we're throwing rocks across an aisle or across a wall or across a continent. And then if you're doing that, it's very easy not to like the people who you've never met. It's very difficult to dislike someone who's right in front of you. It's very difficult to say cruel things to someone who's directly in front of you. Yes. And although we could spend a lot of time hovering over this point or talking about the, the profound diversity within Amazing Race, and we'll come back to that in a moment, I, I want to spend a little bit of time on the front side talking about those who trained this up within you. So who, who was Dr. John Kogan as a parent? Would you talk about your dad as a, as a father? I was always trying to get my dad's attention. My dad, both my parents were workaholics growing up, looking back and then talking to them. I just don't remember a day when they weren't working. You know what I mean? They were always working, weekends working. And I was so I do remember trying to get particularly my dad's attention. And my brother, who's 13 years younger than me, he had my father come and see him play sports and had more of, uh, of time with my dad as a kid. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that my dad was just an older father and maybe he prioritized work and his kids differently, always felt love, always felt like I had someone to go to. I think what I learned from him was just hard work, that work ethic. And from his father, I got to spend a lot of time with my grandfather. As a teenager, probably the most influential adult in my life. And a lot of the qualities that my grandfather had were handed down to my father. So I got to see a lot of those qualities, hard work, doing a job properly, preparing for a job, cleaning up after a job, trying to jump in and help wherever you can. My dad was a very big, or powerful guy. So I always think of his physicality, which was something I wanted to be as well. You know, I wanted to be strong like my, like my dad, but not just strong physically, also just a tower of strength, you know, like somebody I could lean on who had my back. And in later life, we've become much closer because uh, we've made time for each other and taken trips together and done things together. So I'm really, I've had more quality time with my dad as an adult than I did when I was a kid, I would say. So I, di- I didn't know the backstory of that. So then how meaningful was it for you to have your father with you at the finish line? And I don't remember the season by, by, by season and, and episode, but there was one where your dad was at the finish line with you. Yeah, it was in New Zealand in season 13 at Pairua. We were up on top of a hill overlooking Tauranga. And I got to, you know, it was like take dad to work day. <laughs> and then it just so happened that while we were there, one of the farmers was a guy who had gone to university with my dad, an agricultural university. So there we are with all these sheep. And this guy, I think his name was Ron. And I think my dad played rugby against him. And it was just like uh, a very meaningful. and. What I love is that it's, that is a time capsule, right? Like maybe 15 years ago. Oh my goodness. Anyway, a long time ago. So 
before you and I hopped on together, I was able to bring lunch out to my mom and dad. I, I flew in from New Jersey today. I landed in St. Louis, picked up a meal for them, went out to their house and sat with them at the same table that I ate breakfast as a child. Mm. So my mom and dad not only are still together, which is beautiful and they're an amazing example to me, but, but they've lived in that same house for more than 45 years. Mm. You had a very different childhood. Yeah. Not only moving houses around New Zealand, you, you moved continents and time zones and everything else. Would you talk a little bit about what that was like for you as a little boy moving around so much? Well, there were some tough times and some really amazing times. Um, so I got on a plane from New Zealand when I was three, and my dad got a posting at Guelph University in Ontario, uh, lecturing at Guelph University. It's an agricultural college in Ontario. My mom is a music teacher and has the, both of them have the equivalent of doctorates in their field. My dad has a doctor, is a doctor of plant science, my mom in music. We went and lived in Canada for roughly three years. While we were there, there was an opportunity to go live in the Caribbean and my, for my father to set up a project, a forage legume project to help local farmers. And as a specialist in nitrogen fixing plants for forage for farmers, um, he set up a project there. They were meant to stay two years. And we, as a family, we ended up staying eight. Mm. And uh, growing up in Antigua, I was a bit of a free spirit. I used to ride my bicycle all over the island. It's only 108 square miles, so sort of 16 by 16. Uh, I was very much assimilated into the lifestyle of being from Antigua, from the Caribbean. I loved cricket. My heroes were the top cricket players in the world at the time, Viv Richards, Andy Roberts. Um, and so really that culture of that part of my life is just so intrinsically instilled in me in growing up in a, in, in a very diverse environment where you had Syrians and Lebanese and you had Caribs and Arawaks, Indians who came from East India, you had Spanish people, you had Europeans and you had Antiguans who were descendants of the slaves that first were brought to the Caribbean and also into the United States. So a deep history there and a, a melting pot. Right. I knew and had friends that were every shade of every color you could ever imagine. And I, as a kid, I grew up naively not really understanding racism at all, to be honest with you, because... Occasionally, I'd get called out for being white because I was the minority, but I didn't really understand racism the other way towards people of color. And when I think back now on it, when you think that that was so soon, it was in the early 70s after the civil rights movement, it was kind of like it was a different world there. It was very different from other places in the world where racism was really rampant. So I feel like I, I had a unique opportunity to see the world and, and to see a world, I mean, not that there weren't issues or that sort of, or that there wasn't racism, but I'm just saying to be in a, in a, I don't know if I've ever been or visited a place where there's just every shade of every color. And during that time, my dad would get trips to Bogota, Trinidad, Jamaica, Barbados, every island through the Caribbean. We traveled back to New Zealand a few times. He had a posting in Australia. We would go back to Canada. So I was just constantly, constantly moving. Sometimes we had to do schooling remotely. So my whole childhood and upbringing up until I went to high school was all about going to different places, meeting different people, 
and and I think that's where I got my love of people, and I think it's where I got my acceptance of difference because I saw how my parents were just so they had this ability to just adapt wherever they were with whoever they were. They would be talk, talking to a politician one minute, and then they would be talking to the local farmer like Etel Burton, who yeah. grew aubergines, and we'd stop on the side of the road, and my dad would go and talk to Etel Burton and about his aubergines and say, oh, have you thought about trying this or that? So I, I grew up with this understanding of what they are, the, the world that they uh, provided for us, my sister and I, was one of, of real acceptance and giving. And my mom being a music teacher, she had 80 students. Um, I was just talking about this with a friend of mine. Of those 80 students, she had the sons and daughters of politicians sitting in the same room with Rastafarian musicians, Pipey, Boko, and, and Iceman, who had never gone past middle school, who didn't even know how to write their name, but out of all her 80 students, one of them got distinction, got the highest mark on the island, was so incredibly bright. Um, here you've got these Rastafarians sitting there with dreads, who are part of a big reggae band, and they're sitting next to sons and daughters, like I said, of politicians and everything in between. And my mom taught those students and treated them all the same. And I was in the class as well, and I was in in that mix. And so I just, I, I guess I got good at just meeting people and talking with anybody. I never saw a class. It was sort of a bubble in a way. And my mom was amazing. Like, so resourceful. I remember she was teaching at Princess Margaret School and they didn't have enough typewriters at another school. And someone asked my mom if she would go and teach typing at this other school. And mom said, how many typewriters do you have? And they said, well, we don't have any typewriters. So I remember helping my sister and I helping my mom load all these typewriters at Princess Margaret's school into the back of a Ford Escort, driving to the other side of the island out to Bethesda. It's a little uh, village out on the other side of the island unloading all the typewriters into another classroom on the other side of the island, her teaching a class, loading the typewriters back into the, the car and driving back to the school again. When you grow up and you see your parents do those sorts of things, oh. it absolutely has an effect on how you see the world and also it, I'm a problem solver and that sort of thing. In saying all that, it seems like you were being groomed for the United Nations for education or a travel blog, not yet determined. With the amazing race. <laughs> but but yeah. it's TV, because all those things yeah. ultimately come from the amazing race. But the, at first, you're just like an intern, you know, holding a boom for a mic, no. you know, market watch, and all. That's pretty interesting. And all these other shows that you begin doing your work on, what was it about television that you, the bug bit you? Well, after I, my parents wanted me to, to finish school properly, they felt that I could get a better education going back to New Zealand because they were going to eventually go back to New Zealand. So I got, I traveled by myself from Antigua at the age of 13, went to the other side of the world and went into a very rigid school system there. It was very different school system, quite strict. And for me, that was like major culture shock because I was essentially an Antiguan, but I looked like all the other white boys that were back at the school but my head was not in the same place that they were i had different sensibilities i had different life references and that was very very difficult for me it, it was extremely challenging 
because as soon as I opened my mouth or I met, or that people would be talking about things, I had no idea what the hell they were talking about because I didn't understand that world at all. I knew this other world, even though I didn't look like I came necessarily from that world. And during that time at school, it took me a while to assimilate. It took me a while to get into the culture. It took me a few years before I started playing rugby or understood what rugby was. It took me a while before I understood what the farming community was like there the cultural references, everything. And then by the time I was getting towards the end of school, everybody was steered off into very definite roles, lawyer, engineer, doctor, physical therapy. There were very few pathways to the arts. And certainly in the day when I was at school in high school, there was no pathway to broadcasting or telling a story or being a journalist. It was, you went and got a degree in whatever, and then you decide what you do. But generally that degree was very specific. You're gonna go be an engineer, I'm gonna be an accountant, you're gonna be whatever. So I just could not connect with any of those career pathways. And I love stories. And I was, a, I'd been a photographer and had my own dark room since I was very young. Been taking uh, photographs since I, as long back as I can remember, I had first camera when I was probably four or five got all my photographs still. And so I just wanted to do something with stories, but I didn't know what the outlet was. And the only way you could get into TV in those days was throughout the whole country. They had two spots for high school kids straight out of school into doing a three-year apprenticeship at one of the TV stations in either Dunedin, Christchurch, Wellington, or Auckland, the, the main cities in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And I applied and I didn't get it. So my parents were like, well, go to university, get a general degree. You can always fall back on a piece of paper. Now, my grandparents never got a shot at going to university because they were working class people. My grandmother had been a hairdresser and she came from a family of 16 and she was told, you're a woman, you've got to look after the kids. You don't get to go, even though she was top in her class. My grandfather was top in his class, got a scholarship to go to high school, but was told, no, you got to go to work. So at 13, he was pulled out of school, went straight to work, became a hey, great mechanic. One of the brightest people I've ever met in my life, by the way. So the idea that I had, and my parents get their doctorates, they go to university. So the idea that my generation, that I would even be thinking about not going to university when that was all they wanted, but never had a chance to do. The idea that I was going to go work in television. What, what the hell is television? And some of my first jobs were literally dragging cables behind cameras and making coffee and sweeping floors, doing menial jobs as a television assistant. They were just like, well, you're out of your mind. So my parents were, they played kind of tough love with me. And they said, if you're going to do that, you're on your own. Financially, right. you're on your own. We're not going to support this. We'll support you if you go to university, but we're not going to support you down the television route. So I've been financially independent since I left at school. I haven't taken a cent from my parents. Uh, a lot of pride involved with that as well. But I got on a $100 motorbike. I rode away from home about 250 miles at a top speed of 25 miles an hour on a Czechoslovakian old motorbike. And I turned up into Christchurch and started at $6,999 a year working as a television assistant. And to make extra money, I worked in a bar. I paid $30 a week in, to, to have a room in a, in a couple's house, in a family's house. I worked seven days a week 
And I cut my three-year apprenticeship down to a year. And because of my camera experience, ended up in the camera section. My salary went to $12,000. It doubled. And then it was while I was a camera operator, uh, or assistant camera operator, I should say, that I got an opportunity to be in front of the camera. And then since then, I've been jumping from in front of the camera, behind the camera. And that's sort of how my how that pathway started for me getting into television. But I, I literally started with, you know, people would say, good morning coffee. That was my cue to go make them coffee. So I started from the ground up, like literally. <laughs> it, it, it's a it, amazing bio. We had time to unpack it all. I'm, I'm going to speed it up just a little bit to spot on. And I don't think you need to unpack the entire story, though it's, it's life-changing. Near-death experiences, you and I both know, can change your life for better or for worse. And yeah. I'm curious, you uh, had a near-death experience about 120 feet underwater. How did that experience change your life once you rose and started breathing again? Well, when you're 19, as I was going on 20, you think you're invincible. I mean, I did things then that I look back on, I'm like, what an idiot. It's like, you don't think of yourself as being... Uh, like anything that happened to you, you just, you really do think you're invincible. As you get older, you're like, oh man, what was I thinking? And that was close. So yes, I've been diving all my life, free breath diving in Antigua. Growing up, I used to do a lot of free breath diving and I could dive quite deep in the water. And so scuba diving came really easy to me and I was very, very comfortable in the water, but wreck diving is a whole other thing. And I got separated from my dive buddy in a wreck, a 22,000 ton wreck, and didn't know where I was, didn't know the way out. And my dive buddy was looking for the crew because it was meant to be a crew. You can see my throat's getting dry talking about it, but um, we're meant to meet the crew down in the bowels of this ship and we couldn't find them. So my buddy left me, but there was a current going through the ship and I got completely disorientated underwater and kicking around, silted up the water and without being able to see him and then trying to find my light and then turning on my light and then breathing really fast and being that deep in the water. Anybody knows anything about scuba diving, you're sucking through air so quickly. It's very deep. And so I panicked and thankfully my dive buddy did come back and it did get me out of there. I, I really don't remember too much about getting out, but I do remember opening my eyes on the deck of the ship and getting up onto the ship and looking around and going, whoa, like that sky is so blue and that air is, smells so good. And wow, it was like I got a second shot at living. And so I wrote down all the things I wanted to do in my life. And it was out on a paper bag. And that list over the years has been like a contract for me, the things that I'm going to do. And I don't want to say that I'm glad it happened, but good things have come out of it happening. And it woke me up and I, the list was pretty selfish. You know, at 19, you write a very different list than you write now when you're in your fifties, but it's been a catalyst for pretty much everything I've done since. What do you think it is about testing yourself? Because the following day you went back into that shipwreck. And by the way, the shipwreck is not a little pontoon boat that flipped over. This is a massive ship. And there's so much more to the story than we're going to unpack together today. But what is it about going back into that ship and then bungeeing off that bridge and then testing yourself in a new place that you find so invigorating and not just you, but people? Well, 
we all get knocked down. And to me, what I like is to see when someone, if they do get knocked down, has the ability to get back up again and risk getting knocked back down. We have a weird thing in our culture with regards to what we call failure. When things don't work out, we call it failure. They failed at this. You try a new TV show, it doesn't work. It's a failure. You can look at it that way, or you can also look at it like a, a learning step, an important step forward in being better for finding something that will work. I have resilience and I've, I've been knocked down many times and I had been knocked down many times before I, before this near death experience. And I saw when my parents faced obstacles and I saw how resilient they were and how they just refused to ever give up on anything that if they made their minds up to do something, then they stuck with it. They did it. And yeah, there was no question that I was going to go back. I'm claustrophobic. I don't think you ever conquer your fear if you're claustrophobic. You don't conquer it as much as you let that fear know that you will not let it control you. Right. Will not stop you from doing things. I mean, one of the reasons that I dived the world's longest underwater caves in the Yucatan jungle was again, I, I remember thinking, what's the scariest place that I could ever put myself? And I thought, well, the world's longest underwater caves in the Yucatan jungle would be a pretty good place to get scared. So it was very, very challenging mentally. But then once I did, it was like, okay, I can handle anything. Like the, the if, if you think of a scale of one to 10, 10 being your ultimate fear. If you try to live your life down at one all the time and just keep things ever, you know, super, super safe. Right. You see this with parenting. Don't, John, you know, Johnny, don't go up there. Don't go there. Don't. You're going to fall. Actually, probably a good idea to let your kids fall and graze their knees falling off a bicycle. You don't learn unless you're pushing to the edge. Yeah, you don't want them to risk life and limb, but falling off a bicycle in the driveway, you and you're trying to protect them from that when they're learning? No. You've got a, a few grazes, in my opinion, <laughs> a few grazes and bumps and bruises. Uh, falling out of a tree, maybe. I fell out of so many trees. <laughs> I got so many stitches. I'm not saying go to extremes. I'm just saying we have to also be careful about overanalyzing everything to the point where we just don't do anything because we get paralyzed with fear and we get we we analyze you know analysis paralysis on everything. Come on, people. This is not how human beings are. We take risks and. We discover new and different things because we try new and different things. And with that comes some risk. And human beings are built for risk. You know, I think it's, what's the, there's a gene, the extreme gene. We can't take that out of our makeup, our physiology. It's, it's part of us. And I think the reason that we manufacture fear, like bungee jumping, skydiving, is because human beings inherently crave that feeling of what we probably ran, you know, where we were running away from a charging boar in the bush because it was, you know, we missed the shot and they were hey, and that adrenaline starts to kick in because they're now chasing you off towards the edge of a cliff. You know, that feeling, whatever it is, is just, it's inherently a part of us. And, and so I think that's why we've manufactured some of it so we can get that feeling. 
by the way. It's just my theory. No, I think you're onto something. And I think you're validating that even through 35 seasons of something like this. Last night, we, we started the 35th season of Amazing Race for the two of our listeners or viewers who have no idea what the Amazing Race is. Give us a quick snapshot of what is the Amazing Race. Well, the Amazing Race goes back to the year 2000, I think, is when it first got pitched. And it's a great concept. It's a fantastic concept where you've got teams of two. They're varying pairings. There can be father, daughter, mother, son, can be best friends. It can be couples, married couples, siblings, whatever it is. These dynamic teams of two follow a series of clues around the world. And these clues tell them to perform certain tasks. For instance, you've got to learn how to do a river dance uh, in Ireland, a short sequence, or you've got to transport bowls of cheese to the top of a hill for storage. It can be anything and everything. Uh, sometimes you're given money because you actually need money to get from point A to point B, or you're given tickets. And the slowest teams are eliminated at each of these pit stops that we have at the end of each leg. And the fastest teams get to race all the way to the finish line. And the winning team gets a million dollars. It's pretty much it in a nutshell. 34 seasons, not 35. 20 plus years, 10 Emmys. What do you attribute that success to? Like, Why the long run? Why the success? Why are people still tuning in? Well, I think it goes back to what you and I talked about earlier with regards to some content is made to spike interest. It's controversial. It's outrageous. It's jarring. And so the audience, we all are curious, will immediately go to, what is this? You know, some outrageous thing happens on some dating show. And we all want to know it's like becomes immediately part of the zeitgeist. I think on Amazing Race, we never tried to jump the shark with things or try to make things that were controversial or that we knew would just pull people in without there being some real substance behind the content that we're making. And so over the years, it's just been a consistently quality show. And the audience has stuck with us because we haven't wavered from that. We've stuck with maintaining quality for a very, very long time. To get something to work as long as it has. Amazing. And still for us to be part of the zeitgeist. And interestingly, I think Amazing Race is probably more important now than it was even when it started because of the messaging that we can share with people. And most of the time when you see the world in prime time, there's something wrong happening. There's a war, there's a flood, there's a civil unrest, there's something going wrong. And we're one of the few shows where we're in prime time and we're in a foreign place where we're showing things that are actually... Right, beautiful. You know, it's like, wow, these people are amazing. Look at the food that they eat. Look at the games that they play. Look at the dances that they do. Look at the way they farm there. So we're celebrating the best of what the world has to offer as opposed to highlighting what's going wrong around the world. 
many folks who do what you do in some capacity, I, I view them more almost as they're just keeping the show moving forward or they're the judge. They're a referee to some degree. And on Amazing Race, I've always viewed you more as a, a peer and an encourager. Like you're almost for them, all of them. Is that Was that written in early on or is that just your nature and your character and who you are and that's just what they caught on camera? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't really know. I just, I, the biggest compliment that I can get from people is when they say, oh, you're just like you are on the show. You know, if the people meet me, I try to be the same person and I, I do inherently really get a kick out of watching people experience things for the first time. It's why I've written my book, why I have spoken around the world at various companies and universities and that sort of thing to encourage people to write their own list, to do their own things. So I think what you're seeing is just what I'm inherently interested in, which is encouraging people to live their best life and do things that mean something to them. My parents are in their 80s now. We just went on a once-in-a-lifetime trip to Iceland. And if you only have to look at the math. I mean, there's no guarantee that I'm going to outlive them. But if you look at my parents, they're in their 80s. Their parents died roughly in their mid-80s. So let's say my parents have got, statistically, four more summers left. You know? Start to think about that and you go, wow, okay. I better do something with this, make the most of this, not be getting to a point where maybe they can't move as because right now they can both move freely. They're in good shape. My dad just had a half knee replacement. My mom's in good shape. But that could all change like that in a second. And I get a kick out people wanting to get the most out of life immediately, like right now, as opposed to, oh, yeah, one day I'm going to do that. One Someday I should do this and someday I should do that. There's too much of that. People hanging on to jobs too long people maybe hanging into relationships too long, people being around people who are, are not necessarily good for them for too long. We people deserve the monotony of their life as if it's a cross to bear when it's yeah. the only one you got, man. Savor this, look east, watch the sunrise and be in awe. Yeah, and, and change, it's not always easy. I mean, especially if you're tied down with financial commitments and you got to put food on the table for people. There are obviously different considerations, but maybe you find a way to carve. It might take a while. <laughs> the journey of making the transition out of that, it's not like you can just quit your job and not everybody. There's lots of people I know who should be quitting their job and doing something else. But what I'm saying is it's not so easy for everybody, especially when those bills are just continuing to come in. So then you have to think about playing more chess than checkers. You've got to think more about if I push these pawns out here and now I move my rook over here, you've got a more of a long-term plan to slowly shift out of what you're talking about, that monotony, rather than just sort of resigning yourself to the fact that you're stuck in that forever. No, right. our ways to make change. It might not be an overnight thing for some, yes, but for others, maybe it's going to take a while to make that move. And then you have to become the expert in how you're going to do that and start the plans. 
or how to do that. It, it seems like success leaves breadcrumbs. And so you've had 34 winners that we know of, 35, I think that you know of by now, of the amazing race. You have such a diverse audience and such a diverse group of contestants. What is it that you found as the common characteristic that unites all those who ultimately won as a team? Well, you and I were just talking before about how to find a way to accentuate the things that we do agree on and accentuate the positive things rather than labeling what's wrong. Very easy to point fingers and say why you don't think this person should love that person or why that this person would be better than that person as a politician or there's good and bad on both sides and everything. There is no perfect scenario in anything. You know, in relationships, you have periods of time where maybe one partner is leaning more on another. And I mean, you're looking for that 50-50 balance always, but you know that it kind of moves depending on what's going on in the lives of all of us when we need to lean on others more and when we can be more of the support. And so an amazing race, I think what we're trying to do is we're just trying to say, hey, we might vote for different people. We might be different color. We might love different types of people. We might like different types of sport or like different types of food. But let's agree to agree on the things we do love. We love our families. There are people in our lives who really mean something to us. Let's focus on that and let's celebrate that. And I would like to think that over the years, Amazing Race has opened people's eyes up to maybe some bias that they had towards other cultures. The other day, a guy said online, um, and he didn't, he didn't mean it in a malicious way or anything, but he said, um, he said, yeah, I love the Amazing Race, but I hate when they eat that disgusting food. So I, I thought about it and I knew what he meant. I, I, he did, he wasn't saying, he wasn't trying to be dismissive of somebody else's food, but I just wrote a pleasant sort of reply. And I said, well, I said, what you might see as disgusting, somebody else might see as a delicacy. Mm. There's plenty of foods in America that other people don't necessarily see as a delicacy and may think the same way too. Meaning, I know there are some cultures that don't like peanut butter. Well, I don't know what I would do without peanut butter. In Korea, they eat live octopus. Not really what I want to eat, but for some people in Korea, that's a delicacy. And I respect that that's a delicacy. I wouldn't want to necessarily call that disgusting. Because, I would, you know, it'd be like someone right. coming and saying, oh, that we love our hamburgers. <laughs> oh, or our short ribs or our uh, buffalo wings. Oh, that's disgusting. Well, no, it's actually a delicacy here in the South. We love, we love our buffalo wings or whatever. But, you know, it's more about just going, well, that's interesting. Let me try it. Speaking uh, of trying it, what, what folks may not realize as they watch the show is how exhausting it is for those con contestants. Yeah. What they certainly don't realize is the only people working harder are the guys and ladies in the black shirts behind the cameras, you being one of them. So th these days are grueling. They're exhausting. How, how do you, in particular, as you age, man, you mentioned 50s. As you age, how do you prepare yourself emotionally and physically for the rigors of the day? Well, 
I do keep myself very fit and I try to get myself super fit before I go on amazing race. And you know, I've done a few physical things, you know, very physical things and endurance type things. I love pushing myself physically and mentally. Um, so I try to get myself in super shape because I know that during the race, I'm not going to be working out regularly and I'm going to get super tired and I'm going to have to prioritize sleeping over working out. I think you have to have a certain mindset. There's some people that can deal with sleep deprivation and there's some people that can deal with the grind and there's others that are just not suited to that. It doesn't make one group better than the other. Some people love routines. They love that they get up at six every day and go to the gym and then they know that they know where they're going to be next March 15th. They know where they're going to be March 15th. I can tell you right now, I have no idea where I'm going to be March 15th next year. People will say to me, hey, can you come and do this or give me a, you know, do a speech on this date? I'm like, I don't know. I, I actually really don't know whether I can or not. So I love that about Amazing Race is that every single time we go out, it's different. I never feel like the show is repeating itself. I think if I had done 35 seasons of a studio show where it was the same format, I think I would probably struggle with that. But I like that there's the variety and I find it super exciting to be involved. And it's like we're all out on this adventure and we're all trying to get through it together. And we're like-minded people who share a passion for storytelling. So it doesn't feel like work to me. It feels like a great adventure. Wow. I'm glad. I think this is a good place to begin moving toward the starting line, not the finish line, the starting line. So uh, the great adventure relationships are hard, in particular, when you're on the road as much as you are. And some of the things you do, you whispered it, but I'll roar it a little bit louder, like La Ride and mm -hmm. races across the United States and all these other things, putting a, a golf ball across Scotland. Mm -hmm. This is stuff that's both difficult and hard. And people are probably saying, why in the world does he do it? Well, there's reasons. How in all of the business of your life, have you focused also to not only have a wonderful relationship with your bride, but also to be raising your daughter the way you did with a positive bend that you've gifted her? Just with regards to my daughter, interestingly, she is in Panama right now on location working on a show. And my wife also, my wife, and in the beginning, she was my girlfriend and she's my business partner. We met while we were both in the business. We were both in entertainment. And so that helped tremendously as far as her understanding that I would be away for extended periods of time. A little bit like if, if you marry somebody who's in the military and you know that they're going to have tours yes. or, or business people who travel. And so it's always been a part of our relationship. And our daughter has seen that. And I've always seen it as healthy in the sense that we do a lot of planning about, we've been back to the same place for Christmas for 33 years in New Zealand. We haven't missed a Christmas together as a family. So that's a staple. And that's not just our, my immediate family, but my parents and extended family. Our daughter, our rule was always that we weren't going to let having a child get in the way of us working out or traveling, or doing any work. So our daughter came out on location from the earliest age. I have a photograph. <laughs> so there's a sound guy that I've been working with. 
since 1996. My daughter was born in 1995. My wife and daughter came to location where I was shooting in Queenstown, New Zealand. And I have a photograph of this sound recorder. He's from Canada. I think he's the greatest sound recorder in the world. His name is Jim Urslag. And I have a photograph of him holding my daughter when she was about six weeks old in front of the remarkable mountains. Hmm. And I've been working with him ever since. It's one of my longest professional relationships. I've got one that's longer, goes back to 1992, apart from my wife. And cut to years later, and he's known her all her life. Cut to years later, we're working on Tough as Nails, and Jim is the sound recordist on that show. And my daughter is working as a story producer on that show, and there's the two of them. And, you know, a couple of times I had to pinch myself. I'm like, awesome. There's Jim, who was holding my daughter when she was six weeks old. And now there they are working, collaborating, talking about story. So I have this, I have this dream, like one day we're going to, somehow we're going to find ourselves back in Queenstown. Jim's going to be there. Elle's going to be there. And I'm going to get Elle to, the hold, same photo. to hold Jim up. Because she's <laughs> taller than Jim. <laughs> so we, we, we have seven rapid fire questions that, that guide all of our inter interviews to their appropriate conclusion. They tether all of our guests together. And as I get ready to ask these seven questions, I think one of the most beautiful things you've done is you've said yes to your daughter. Mm. You mentioned at the very beginning of the interview that your father wasn't always there for you at the sporting events. It wasn't always there for you when you came home for school and wasn't always there for you to shoot the basketball in the backyard. And for you, when you're home and she says, daddy, will you, before the answer, before the question's even fully asked, you're up and you're moving. And I think that's a beautiful example to all the dads and the moms and the aunties and uncles listening right now. So Phil, as we wrap up together, here come the seven questions. Question number one is what's been the most impactful book you've ever read? I'm not going to overthink this, but I love this book called Longitude and it's written by uh, Dana Sobel. And it's about a guy called John Harrison who came up with the first clock that could keep time at sea. And it's a story of resilience and passion and smarts. And if anybody hasn't read it, I've given that book away to, oh, at least 20 people. Because it's such a story about never give up. You that love the underdogs. I think you cherish and elevate I do. the ones that everyone else seemed to run right past. I will tell you that that book has been an inspiration for me on so many levels and so many different things. I like being told I can't do something. I mean, Tough as Nails took 10 years to sell. 10 years. And now it's being made in the Netherlands, Belgium, Denmark, Turkey. It's been optioned by over 30 countries. Of all the things that I've done, it's one of the things I'm most proud of because it was so hard to sell. But that book gave me the strengths to just carry on. You know, he never actually saw or reaped the benefits of what he did during his lifetime. It came after. And it had a lot to do with class because he didn't go to university. And so he was he was ostracized by the scientific community. And so it reminded me of my grandfather, who was the brightest kid in his class, who never got a chance to go to university or even finish high school and was looked down on, or not him specifically, but I've heard people say derogatory things about 
working class people that really annoys me because that's my family. <laughs> and so it spoke to that. And I hate class. I mean, it really irks me. So yes, I'm inspired by underdogs, always have been. The other book that I have to mention and become more pertinent in recent years is The Old Man in the Sea, Ernest mm. Hemingway. Because we have a thing in our society with ageism and it's really bad. And we've got to somehow try to find a shift. We're all about the new, next, young, whatever coming through. And I'm all about that. I love young people coming through, fresh ideas, new ideas. Yes, absolutely. The new generation coming through, showing us new ways of doing things. But we cannot forget the value of wisdom and the respect we should have for our elders and for those who came before us and who did hard yards to make our lives easier mm. with was serving, whether it was making a better life for their kids, which is then in turn given us a better life, which in turn will then give our kids a better life. Like that old man in the sea is a great, that book, it's so beautifully written. He's such an incredible writer, the way he's just so economical, the way he writes. And there's a lot of good life lessons in that book, The Old Man in the Sea. So you, you just sold two books today. So uh, question number two, what's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little guy that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I mean, maybe my music. I really don't have any regrets, but um, I guess if I had two regrets, it would be one that when I was learning French, I didn't, I, I had a choice to stop learning French and I wish I had continued learning French because it would be hugely valuable. I wasted that opportunity. I really should have paid more attention. But when I went to school, I had the choice of not doing it as opposed to my parents making the choice. And I chose not to do it because I, I couldn't see the sense of it. Now I realize that was dumb. And the, the second would be that I haven't kept my music up. I played the violin from the age of three. I went to music school in Lenox, Massachusetts at a place called Marywood, and I was pretty good on the violin. And around my mid-teens, I started getting more into sport and girls, and I sort of lost the focus, and I didn't keep it up. When I was given the choice, and it's a beautiful instrument, and by the way, it's not all bad because I can still pick up the violin and play it, but I, I wish I had just kept that going. If your home caught fire and all living things are up, but you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item, what's the one thing you would come racing back out with? It'd be my grandfather's watch. He had a Roma, a 44 jewel Roma. And my grandparents came from, like I said, very humble beginnings and they saved up their whole life for one overseas trip. They looked after everything because they didn't have a lot. They really taught me the value of valuing things. They didn't have a lot of material items, but I remember this Roma watch, not an expensive watch, but was for my grandfather in its day. Beautiful, simple 44 jewel Roma. I remember it on his wrist. And I remember his hands, you know, he was a gunsmith. It was a mechanic. He could fix anything. And he had these amazing skills, these amazing life skills. I used to be in his workshop watching him bed a rifle or reload. 
or fix something. And I remember watching his hands and the dexterity in his hands in this watch, you know, this, this watch. And I got the watch. And wow. um, I've worn it to every Emmy. Every time I've won the Emmy, I've had that watch on. I only wear it on special occasions. And I'm not really a material guy. Like I, I focus more on travel and experiences. I, I have a 18 year old car. I'm not like, I love cars by the way, but I don't, I'm not extravagant with stuff, but this watch I love. This has mm. got a lot of sentimental value and I want it to go to one of my grandkids, but that's the one. Yeah. That would be the thing I would say. Everything else, even, I even own a Rolex, which has meaning, but not and worth way more than this Roma. <laughs> Let it burn though. You're coming out with grandpa's watch. I'm, I'm bringing that watch out. It's so got a like, strap too, so I don't want it to get burned. <laughs> if you uh, could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with any, anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? Ooh, wow. I think my grandfather. I figured. Yeah, I think my grandfather, because I think I've valued my relationship with him more now that he's gone than I did even though I really did value it when he was alive. But there's just so many questions I have. I'd love to go back and just ask, you know, fill in some gaps. I'd love to ask my grandfather more questions about the family history and, and just him as a young man. And yeah, learn more about, when you learn about your past, you learn more about yourself, right? Always. What, what's the best advice your grandfather, your wife, your daughter, or anyone else ever gave you? Well, there's one that I can't say because it's too rude. Um, You'd say it to me. Uh, my wife is yelling out, don't say it. Um, I want to say that. <laughs> Thank God it's for good, loyal, loud wives. <laughs> one, day, one day we'll meet in person and I'll tell you. It's Whisper to my ear later on. Uh, but yeah. what's the second best advice you've ever received? Like He would always say to me, the, the most important part of a job is preparing for the next job. So when you finish a job, you clean up, you put everything away so that you're ready for the next job. That means you're prepared for right. the next job. So yes, looking after your tools and putting everything away. And so I apply that to everything. Everything that I do, in addition to his watch, I have a pair of Ray-Ban glasses of his that date back to the 40s. When I saved up and I bought my first Ray-Bans in 19, with my first paycheck in 1986, when I was earning $6,999 a year as a television assistant, I went and bought a pair of Ray-Bans. I still have those Ray-Bans and they're in mint condition. <laughs> I have my grandfather's glasses, Ray-Bans that were bought in 90, and, and they were bought in 19, the 1940s. And so I use it as a lesson with my daughter. I'm like, she asked me if she could take them. And I said, El, have you ever lost glasses? And she said, yeah. I said, these, I can't lose these. Like your record so far is that you lose glasses. If you could show me that you can't lose glasses, then yeah, okay. But they mean too much to me. Like that's, this is a representation of my first paycheck. This is what the lesson, the life lesson that my grandfather taught me. What advice would you give yourself at age 20? This this is a year after your near death experience, 120 feet beneath the sea. 
now you're back out of the water. If you could go back in time and say, man, Phil, pay attention to this or do that instead, what would you say? Well, something that I'm still learning and I don't always get right, ironically, but when I was younger, when I was right, I wanted to be right. I wanted to prove that I was right. And as I've got older, I've realized that being right, even when you're right, isn't necessarily effective. Mm. And so I would say to myself at 20, hey, you may know you're right, but it's better to be effective than be right. So now sometimes I still fall into the trap of I'm right about something. I know I'm right about something and I'm wanting to prove a point that I'm right. But I bite my tongue and I wait and I try to be more efficient by saying, okay, if I prove I'm right in front of this person, it's going to take away their influence in this situation. How do I forget about being acknowledged as being right and how do I focus more on empowering this person who may be wrong but ultimately it serves both of us because it's effective we make decisions to move forward rather than getting caught up in ego and I told you so mm. it irks me more quite frankly when people say I told you so it's like yeah doesn't really help anything. Phil Gogan, you've, you've just about finished the amazing race. We're at question number seven, and it is, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? Curious and always striving to do better. If there's one word to, that I would like people to think of, when they think of me, it's just that oh, he's a really curious guy. <laughs> he's really, really curious. But I mean, it's my favorite book when I was a kid, Curious George. I love finding out new things. I love meeting new people. And a lot of it's just because I love finding out things about people and perspective. And I like when someone can actually change my mind on something and they're not scared to do it. Some people are scared to try to change your mind. I'm like, no, don't be scared. Tell me, hold on a second. <laughs> it's like being fascinated with people who maybe vote for people that you don't vote for. Right. And instead of criticizing them for it, you can agree to disagree, but just say, well, well tell me, hold on. I'm, I'm really interested. So you like this woman in your district. Didn't she like, tell me why you like her. What, what is it about her? Oh, well, it's, you know, I like this. I like that. Okay. Can see that, but then what about? And then you are able to have a conversation and challenge them and say, Yeah, but didn't she also put in a policy that was, a, yeah, and, well, how do you feel about that? Because I mean, that isn't that why a lot of people you've got we've got to have more conversations. Hmm. There, there's always good in everybody, and now what's going on in the world where. If you're on a particular team, there's nothing good about the other team. That's just not the world we live in, you know? And that's, to me, not a, also, that's not America. You know, coming from New Zealand, I'm a, I'm a legal alien. <laughs> what I always grew up thinking about America was, well, this is a place where people talk. It's a place where people argue policy and they discuss things. 
in a healthy, rational way. And I just feel like we're not having those conversations in the same way. That was ruined by the media and then social media, and then they play to the ratings. And what I respect about you is not, not only are you curious about others, you broadcast that loudly and clearly and brilliantly, and you do this now into the 35th season of Amazing Race. Man, I, I respect your heart and your wisdom and your work and the fact that you spend part of your day hanging out with my friends that live inspired. So Phil, go, congratulations on the journey you've been on, the race that you've been on. And thank you for believing, like I do, that the best is yet to come. I agree with that. Thank you for the opportunity. My friends, that is Phil Kogan. He is, as of last night, launching the 35th season of Amazing Race. My name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. Early in the conversation, Phil shared that his mother and father were workaholics when he was growing up. One of the most beautiful things he's done as a parent to Ellie is to say yes to her. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't work hard. He doesn't travel a bunch. But when Ellie has a request, when she's in the room with dad, he looks her in the eye, the phone is set aside, the laptop is shut, and the answer is yes, yes. It's such a beautiful example to all of the dads and the moms, the aunties, the uncles in the room listening right now. Time is fleeting, and it is vitally important to be present with those who are looking up to us because one day they won't be looking up to us. So let's make sure we savor the gift of these opportunities today. If you enjoyed today's episode, you'll love my conversation with Allison Levine. Met her several times. She's also a friend. She's amazing. Allison knows what it's like to survive in the world's toughest environments. She served as team captain of the first American women's Everest expedition. She scaled the seven summits. She skied to the North and South Poles. That's just kind of showing off now. Here, Allison recount her history-making expeditions, the lessons in leadership that they taught her, and how you can achieve more in your life than you thought possible. Where can you learn more about this? Well, I'm glad you asked. You can learn more about Allison Levine on episode 390 of the Live Inspired podcast. Again, it's episode 390. Or by letting your fingers do the track into the polls by just joining me right now online at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. Well, my friends, you know, I'm always trying to do life with you, to do the journey forward with you, to run the amazing race with you. And if you're looking for a live experience that is all about you, would you consider joining me either live streaming or in person at our first live event now in four years? You won't want to miss it. It is going to change your life positively and profoundly. We're calling this thing on fire for good. If you want to learn more about this event, the date is November 25th, 2023. It's a Saturday after Thanksgiving. You can join us live in theater, or you can also join us by live streaming anywhere you are in the world. Again, join me at this event by learning more at onfireforgood.com. Can't wait to see you there. So my friends, for this time, and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Continue running the amazing race of your life and live inspired. Inspired. 
Helians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at keelycompanies.com.